Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this inspiring TED Talks HCI podcast episode, I explore Barry Schwartz's 2014 TED Talk, The Way We Think About Work is Broken. Welcome back to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. It's great to be with you again today for this inspiring TED Talks HCI podcast episode. Today, I'll be exploring Barry Schwartz's 2014 TED Talk, The Way We Think About Work is Broken. What makes work satisfying? Apart from a paycheck, there are intangible values that Barry Schwartz suggests our current way of thinking about work simply ignores. It's time to stop thinking of work as cogs on a wheel. I'm excited to explore this TED Talk with you. It actually relates back to a huge body of research that I've been involved in in for the last decade and a half. I've published probably, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 plus academic articles on various aspects of worker satisfaction, employee engagement, um, and happiness at work, and all of the drivers and motivations behind that. And what he says is absolutely true that for most people, the paycheck is not the main motivator. It's not what makes them happy or what makes them satisfied or engaged at work. It's not what gets them up in the morning or why they stick with a job usually. And so what he will explore in this TED Talk is really dismantling a little bit the notion of the way work is structured and set up, uh, the origins of that uh, system, and suggest that perhaps we might want to think a little differently about how we design work so that people can feel fulfilled, that they can find meaning and purpose in their work. Uh, But that would require a fundamental uh, reconfiguration of the nature of our economy, uh, the way we perceive and conceive of the workplace, and our interactions with others within the workplace. So I'm super excited to explore this with you, and I'll catch you on the flip side of this first clip. Today I'm going to talk about work. And the question I want to ask and answer is this, why do we work? Why do we drag ourselves out of bed every morning instead of living our lives just filled with bouncing from one Ted-like adventure to another? (laughs) You may be asking yourselves that very question. Now, I know, of course, we have to make a living, but nobody in this room thinks that that's the answer to the question, why do we work? For folks in this room, the work we do is challenging, it's engaging, it's stimulating, it's meaningful, 
And if we're lucky, it might even be important. So we wouldn't work if we didn't get paid, but that's not why we do what we do. And in general, I think we think that material rewards are a pretty bad reason for doing the work that we do. When we say of somebody that he's in it for the money, we are not just being descriptive. <laughs> now, I think this is totally obvious, but the very obviousness of it raises what is, for me, an incredibly profound question. Why, if this is so obvious, why is it that for the overwhelming majority of people on the planet, the work they do has none of the characteristics that get us up and out of bed and off toward the office every morning? How is it that we allow the majority of people on the planet to do work that is monotonous, meaningless, and soul-deadening? Why is it? that as capitalism developed, it created a mode of production of goods and services in which all the non-material satisfactions that might come from work were eliminated. Workers who do this kind of work, whether they do it in factories, in call centers, or in fulfillment warehouses, do it for pay. There is certainly no other earthly reason to do what they do except for pay. So the question is why? And here's the answer. What is the answer, you may be asking? Well, stay tuned. He'll get to it in the next clip. Uh, but I really appreciate his introduction uh, in this opening clip. And he asks, why do we get up in the morning? Why do we get out of bed? Why do we go to work? What is it that motivates and drives us? And of course, if we're all being honest, we do want to get paid. We want to be paid fairly and equitably. Uh, we, we want to be valued by our organization. And we f when we feel like we're not being valued, when we feel like we're being cheated, or we feel like we're not being um, uh, treated fairly, then absolutely that causes a huge problem. That demotivates people, that causes them to leave. So pay needs to be there. But uh, for people who have their, their basic needs met, uh, people who you know have a roof over their head, they have food in their stomach, uh, they, they're able to pay their medical bills. Uh, for, for people who have their basic financial needs met, pay isn't the number one factor that gets them up in the morning. And even for those who do get up in the morning just for the pay, he asks the question, is that appropriate? Like, is that the way it should be? Uh, that's not the way that jobs always were. There used to be intrinsic... Um, elements within the nature of the work that we do, uh, even even the the hardest uh, blue collar manual work that people did, there was still intrinsic value and satisfaction that people could gain from it. Um, but with the industrial revolution and the mechanization of labor and uh, dividing into even a smaller and smaller subset of skills to perform a task uh, that's one part of a whole. It sucked a lot of those intrinsic uh, elements out of the work that people do. And so we, he asks the question, like, why? Why did we set it up that way? Why, uh, why would any of us, probably any of you listening to this podcast, wh why would you want to get up uh, to, in the morning to go work in a factory or at a call center uh, or in a, a warehouse fulfillment center or name any other mindless, soulless um, kind of mentally draining kind of a, uh, a job that might be out there, why would you do that? And the answer is you, you wouldn't. And, and if, if there are people who need to do that because of the pay and because that's how they, 
they provide for their family. There's nothing wrong with that on their end. Don't get me wrong. I think there's no, um, there's no shame in any sort of job and there's value and merit and, uh, and people should feel proud about their work and what they accomplish, regardless of the role they have, regardless of the work that they do. The critique here isn't on the individual who's working in that factory or in that call center. The critique is on uh, those who have created and perpetuated the system that creates these jobs that are meaningless, purposeless, soulless, uh, and and just uh, life-draining and, and intrinsic-sucking types of mechanisms in our lives. Uh, can we do it differently? And the answer is yes, absolutely we can do it differently. There is so much research on this. I, I have done a small part of it, but there are literally thousands of studies on how to do this effectively, how we can add meaning, purpose, um, fulfillment into almost any kind of job. And the rest of his TED Talk, he's not going to get into all of that research and all of those different things that we can add, only to suggest that uh, that we should do that. We should find ways to... to uh, inject back into work, the work that everyone does, a sense of meaning, purpose, value, that what they do matters, it makes a difference in the world. And I have seen it as a consultant, as a researcher, as a professor, I have seen it, it can happen in almost any type of job. I, I will actually go on the record right now and say any job that exists out there, you can design or redesign in a way that can provide meaning and purpose and value, intrinsic value, for the individual so they can get up in the morning and feel, you know, not necessarily excited about going to work, but they can feel like what they're doing matters. And that is so, so, so important. The answer is technology. Now I know, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Technology, automation, screws people, blah, blah. That's not what I mean. I'm not talking about the kind of technology that has enveloped our lives and that people come to TED to hear about. I'm not talking about the technology of things, profound though that is. I'm talking about another technology. I'm talking about the technology of ideas. I call it idea technology. How clever of me. <laughs> In addition to creating things, science creates ideas. Science creates ways of understanding. And in the social sciences, the ways of understanding that get created are ways of understanding ourselves, and they have an enormous influence on how we think, what we aspire to, and how we act. If you think your poverty is God's will, you pray. If you think your poverty is the result of your own, your own inadequacy, you, you shrink into, into despair. And if you think your poverty is the result of oppression and domination, then you rise up in revolt. Whether your response to poverty is resignation or revolution depends on how you understand the sources of your poverty. This is the role that ideas play in shaping our, us as, uh, as human beings, and this is why idea technology may be the most profoundly important technology that science gives us. And there's something special about idea technology that makes it different from the technology of things. With things, if the technology sucks, it just vanishes, right? Bad technology disappears. With ideas, false ideas about human beings will not go away if people believe that they're true. Because if people believe that they're true, 
They create ways of living and institutions that are consistent with these very false ideas. And that's how the Industrial Revolution created a factory system in which there was really nothing you could possibly get out of your day's work except for the pay at the end of the day. Because the father, one of the fathers of the Industrial Revolution, Adam Smith, was convinced that human beings were by their very natures lazy and wouldn't do anything unless you made it worth their while. And the way you made it worth their while was by incentivizing, by giving them rewards. That was the only reason anyone ever did anything. So we created a factory system consistent with that false view of human nature. But once that system of production was in place, there was really no other way for people to operate except in a way that was consistent with Adam Smith's vision. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. So his reading of Adam Smith and history is a tad different than mine, and I think he goes a little overboard on asserting uh, or the assertions that he makes in relation to Adam Smith as one of the godfathers of of the modern industrial revolution and factory work. Um, he, he certainly contributed to the uh, to the landscape of the ideas at the time uh, that that led into it for sure. Um, that's not the point. That's not uh, the point of this podcast to debate Adam Smith. Um, but his his point about the idea technologies that come out and the how ideas really truly in so many ways impact uh, human nature and the lives that we live that that is one hundred percent true and so important for us to recognize. As he mentioned, with other forms of technology uh, that creates objects, the technology is either valued and embraced or it's discarded and forgotten. Uh, it very quickly uh, becomes obsolete and we don't pay attention to it anymore. But that's not the way it is with idea technology or um, new theories and thoughts and framings and paradigms. Uh, once they start to take hold, it can be really difficult to eradicate um, bad ideas, um, bad narratives, unhealthy paradigms from the zeitgeist and from, from the broader social context and fabric of societies. And that's why we see the pervasiveness of so many negative ways of thinking 
Um, and there's usually some kernel of truth to any of these types of ideas, uh, even conspiracy theories and even some of the most damaging and negative types of ideas. But there's usually at least some kernel of truth to it at the core, and then it builds, and then it influences the lives of countless people, regardless of what the actual ongoing evidence says. That is problematic. And so we have to be very careful about the ideas that we spread um, because ideas spread like a virus. Uh, and, and that can e- either be um, a positive thing if it's a truly healthy kind of a framing, um, but very often it can be incredibly negative. And we see that today just with uh, the, the prevalence of fake news and deep fakes and the political strife and turmoil and everything like that. How does this all relate back to work? Well, he, he makes the argument that the Industrial Revolution started to break down the nature of work, the, the types of jobs that people had done previously, where they could see um, and, and, and pull out intrinsic value from the work that they do every day. They could see uh, the contribution that they were making and, and how, how what they were doing was part of a, a bigger whole. We know from the research that that is incredibly important. But as you broke down the tasks that people needed to do into smaller and smaller little chunks and snippets, uh, which happened in factory work, for example, uh, then you just sucked all of that meaning out. And so, I mean, there's so much we could talk about and debate about in terms of the role of the Industrial Revolution um, you know, and time since then, and the role of technology, disruptive technologies, both idea technologies and objective technologies, uh, the role of those on societies, on the human condition, and such. Uh, the, the, undoubtedly, there's a lot we could we could unpack there, um, but it is true. It's historically factual to suggest, as he is, that with the inception of the Industrial Revolution, that we started to see truly soul-crushing, soul-sucking work becoming more and more common. As he said in the first clip, I believe, uh, the vast majority of human beings on this planet, in fact, do that soul, soul-crushing um, type of work because they're just trying to survive. And so, of course, they're willing to do it because they need the pay uh, to make a living so they can survive. But we've created conditions by which there's almost no possible way that they can get intrinsic value from the work that they do. And that is a huge problem. And that is a construct of this, these ideas that have come about and the perpetuation of those ideas. And just like it's a construct of those ideas uh, in the system that's currently in place, we, we can change it. If we recognize that, we name it uh, and we acknowledge it, then that also means we can change it. We can as managers and leaders within our teams, we can make a difference. We can make sure that our people have meaning, value, purpose, and the opportunity to contribute and make a difference to the world through the work that they do and through the way we design their their work, the jobs and tasks that they perform, their ability to learn and grow, and so forth. This is so important, and I don't know how else to, to really um, to say it other than to say it's our responsibility, each and every one of us who are leaders, uh, to to ensure that our people can feel inherent value to the work that they do. So the work example is merely an example of how false ideas can create a circumstance that ends up making them true. It is not true 
that you just can't get good help anymore. It is true that you can't get good help anymore when you give people work to do that is demeaning and soulless. And interestingly enough, Adam Smith, the same guy who gave us this incredible invention of uh, mass production and division of labor, understood this. He said of people who worked in assembly lines, of men who worked in assembly lines, he says, he generally becomes as stupid as it is possible for a human being to become. Now notice the word here is become. He generally becomes as stupid as it is possible for a human being to become. Whether he intended it or not, what Adam Smith was telling us there is that the very shape of the institution within which people work creates people who are fitted to the demands of that institution and deprives people of the opportunity to derive the kinds of satisfactions from their work that we take for granted. The thing about science, natural science, is that we can spin fantastic theories about the cosmos and have complete confidence that the cosmos is completely indifferent to our theories. It's going to work the same damn way no matter what theories we have about the cosmos. But we do have to worry about the theories we have of human nature because human nature will be changed by the theories we have that are designed to explain and help us understand human beings. The distinguished anthropologist Clifford Geertz said uh, years ago that human beings are the unfinished animals. And what he meant by that was that it is only human nature to have a human nature that is very much the product of the society in which people live. That human nature, that is to say our human nature, is much more created than it is discovered. We design human nature by designing the institutions within which people live and work. And so you people, pretty much the closest I ever get to being with masters of the universe, you people should be asking yourself a question as you go back home to run your organizations. Just what kind of human nature do you want to help design? Thank you. Thanks. Such a powerful question. What kind of human nature do you want to help to design? Now, we all have our different spheres of influence. Um, you know, and some of us uh, who may have a platform, we can make broad, we, we can influence and impact broader um, social dialogues around really important issues. And if you have that kind of a platform, by all means, please take it because. Uh, your voice does matter, and there are plenty of other voices spreading very negative types of ideas that then influence human nature. And, and it's a system that starts to create people uh, that will fit into the system, right? And it's, it becomes self-perpetuating. So we need people to disrupt that. But, you know, most people probably don't have that kind of sphere of influence. Most people, though, do have that influence within their homes. They have that influence perhaps within their neighborhoods or, you know, certain community groups or churches. Uh, but everyone listening today, if you're an organizational leader or manager, uh, you have that opportunity within your team. That part of your sphere of influence is with your people. And you can start to um, share ideas and create the context that will directly shape 
the human condition for them at work, the employee experience, how they will uh, perceive themselves within the scope of the business, within the scope of your organization, within the scope of the team. And you have the opportunity to help them feel uh, and know that what they do is of value, that it matters, that it makes a difference. People want to and need to know that. And so even some of the lower level types of jobs, even, even some that, that require meaning, uh, uh, menial tasks and rote uh, behaviors, even some of those still provide an opportunity when we th- are thoughtful about design to make them more interesting, more meaningful, more purposeful. I don't know about all of you, but I've certainly worked my share of crummy jobs. I've worked in a factory. I've worked in multiple call centers, in beans, in fields, and in trees, and orchards. I've worked, I mean, just so many different types of really meaning, uh, meaningless kind of jobs. And I can relate to directly what he was saying. Um, it is soul-sucking, soul-crushing kinds of work. I remember when I was working in a factory, uh, I, I did it. The, 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 there was some intrinsic um, motivation to it, um, but largely I did it for the pay. But the intrinsic motivation connected to the pay was I knew that if I did it for six months, I could earn enough money that I could go to college, pay for college, and never look back, and I could move forward. So that was my intrinsic motivation is lifelong learning, growth, and the, the opportunity to develop myself. And I, I knew that was a short-term solution, a means to an end. And, and I was able to suck it up and do it. But my goodness, that was a horrible six months. Uh, I hated that job. And even, even though I did everything I could to try to make it more interesting and more meaningful, and I'd give myself little challenges and little tasks and, and little competitions with myself and with my coworkers, I did anything I could think of to try to, to enhance the meaning behind what I was doing. Um, it still was just very soul-crushing work and mindless work and when he described uh, factories uh, or, or these institutions that take away the intrinsic values of work, uh, how they can create people who are like the dumbest version of themselves to be consistent with the institution, that's kind of how I felt um, like things were when I was at the factory. Like it, they almost wanted you to not think at all. And so it, it was a real struggle. Um, over the years, as I was going, paying my way through college and working, lots of different jobs that weren't great. Um, you know, I saw more and more of that. And so I can absolutely relate to it. And I feel for people who have no better options. Like that's the work that they have to do each and every day to provide for their families. And there's honor in that. I don't want to take away from that. Uh, I, I think that's incredible that people are willing to, to make those sacrifices um, for a better life for their family. But the point is, it doesn't need to be that way. We can make that difference for them. There are things, when I was working in a factory, there are easy things, um, completely uh, inexpensive or no-cost ways that the factory could have made our work more meaningful. Now, would it be as meaningful as the work I do now? No. But could it have been much more meaningful than the way it was? Absolutely. And so, you know, let's be thoughtful. Let's be, um, let's be creative Let's talk to our people. Let's find out what motivates them, what what drives them, what's important to them. And then let's start to design work within our teams in ways that allow people to, to be creative, to be innovative, to, do, to, to uh, leverage their natural skills and abilities to continually grow and learn. 
and develop themselves and to make a meaningful difference to the world around them. I believe we can do it. I encourage you all to think about that uh, critically and thoughtfully and figure out how you can do it. And if we can uh, make the, if we can uh, create that kind of an environment, we can influence the human condition for those people within our sphere of influence and make their lives at least a little bit better. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. As always, I hope you stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day, and I hope you have a great week. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free, interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.